0: Welcome to the Grace Life Church podcast. My name is Parker Smith, lead pastor of Grace Life Church, located in Decatur, Alabama. Our prayer is that the sermon you are about to hear will help you grow in your understanding of God's Word, point you to the person of Jesus Christ, and encourage you to live for the glory of God. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Grace Life Church podcast. You may be seated this morning as our kids and students are dismissed again. A word, of word of welcome to you all uh, here with us this morning. If you're a guest, again, my name is Parker. Delighted to have you in our service with us this morning. And um, just as a way of kind of piggybacking on um, what I spoke about even last Sunday about community groups, I'm in the process of trying to figure out how to make that happen. Begin to work toward that end, um, even as early as this fall and um, maybe potentially doing some type of soft launch in community groups uh, even after labor day And, and so i want to keep you posted on that but um just kind of a heads up i didn't want that to come as a surprise to you but i just sense That that now's the time uh, to begin working towards those things and and fostering not just a gospel gathering, but gospel community in the life of our church. And so um, there'll be some things that we'll make you aware of in the coming days, but still working on some of that in terms of logistics and those types of things, but we will keep you posted accordingly. But if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open with me to Isaiah chapter 6. And we're going to be looking at a very familiar passage of Scripture, and likely you have read this passage of Scripture. You have probably heard it preached on as well. This is what theologians and Bible scholars and probably even your Bible calls the call of Isaiah or the vision of the Lord that Isaiah has. It's one of the most well-known passages in the Old Testament. Isaiah is one of the most well-known prophets of the Old Testament. Some call him the prince of prophets in the Old Testament. Some call him the greatest of prophets and certainly one of the most popular of prophets in the Old Testament. Isaiah's name means Yahweh is salvation. And he is the writer of this book. And he switches from, in this chapter, chapter 6... From more prophetic writing to a more personal writing, a more personal account. In his book of prophecy, we have in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, not just something prophetic, but something deeply personal. Isaiah himself is writing from a personal experience. It's an autobiographical account of what happened to him and a vision that he saw. We call it his call to ministry. And it is a beautiful passage that we will look together this morning, but all of it culminating uh, really to a theme of worship and looking at a a, a movement of themes and of, of times that I'll call them in this text and really centers upon not just worship, but the apex of worship. It's the apex of who we sang about time and time again this morning, namely Jesus Christ and His gospel And so with that in mind, I would invite you to stand as we read together Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. This is the book of the Lord, Isaiah. Isaiah writes, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with Two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook. At the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hands a burning coal that he had taken with tongs. From the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, would you say amen? You may be seated. In many ways, this passage that we have here was certainly a vision that is completely unique to Isaiah himself, and hence it is deeply personal. And the words that are written here are deeply personal to Isaiah. It was something that he experienced, but also this was his calling. Yet there are also some common themes within this passage that Isaiah encountered in his encounter with the Lord, and that we too can learn and we should experience when we come into the presence of the Lord, when we come into his presence. For worship, movements and seasons and these movements within this text, for lack of better phrasing, there are fitting times and a fitting response when we worship. The book of Ecclesiastes says that there is a time for everything. There is an appropriate occasion for everything in worship. When we come to worship, there's fitting responses that we should have, things that we should posture ourself and respond in particular ways as coming into the presence of the Lord and looking beyond just mere worship of, of something vague but something specific, namely the person of Jesus Christ, and glorying in His gospel. That is the apex of the worship of God. That is what the Holy Spirit seeks to encourage us to do. He never brings attention to Himself, but always brings glory to Christ. And so our worship should never be about us or about even the gifting of the Spirit, but always about the person of Christ and His gospel. There is always an appropriate response when we encounter the living and thrice holy God. Point number one, there is a time to be comforted. And I'll give you the four points of in front, a time to be comforted, a time to worship, a time to be humbled, and a time to be restored. A time to be comforted, this chapter begins with a reference to a particular time in the middle of the, the life of Isaiah and the history of Judah. Verse 1 tells us that it was in the year that King Uzziah died. If you remember, even from our Advent series, this would have placed the reign of Uzziah and his death anywhere between 740 to 742 BC. And he makes reference to a particular moment in the life of Judah and what we called even then in our Advent series from Isaiah 9:6 of the Syroinformatic Crisis. And where you have Assyria and, and Syria all compounding and working toward taking over Israel and taking over Judah. And it was during this sero-informatic crisis that King Uzziah was reigning, and he was a good king. But here in this text, the king Uzziah died. What we learn from books like 2 Chronicles 26 is that Uzziah was a successful king. he was a good leader. he had a strong military presence and led Israel or Judah to defend themselves and was a strong military leader. He had economic prosperity when he was the king for the people of Judah. he would in second chronicles 26 become somewhat proud and begin burning incense that was inappropriate that upset some of the priests but all along in the book of Second Chronicles and the life of Uzziah, or what is noted of him is that he was a good king. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Not a perfect king. He would have his failings, he would have his moments. But Uzziah was a good king. He was a king that was faithful to the Lord. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And here is Judah. In the midst of this zero-informatic crisis, knowing that it is only a matter of time until armies begin to invade them, only a matter of time until their world has begun to be turned upside down, and they are now facing threat. And now, in the life of Judah, the comfort of having a king to lead them is no longer. The king is dead. The kingdom would be somewhat shaky. There would be times of uncertainty. What would happen to the nation now that the king is no longer? Who will be the next king? Who will come and lead us? Will he be a faithful king or will he do what's evil in the sight of the Lord? Like other kings in the kingdom of Israel. Or will he do what's right? And it was in this time, the year that King Uzziah died, that Isaiah gets his vision. That despite who is on an earthly throne, Isaiah sees another throne. He sees a heavenly one. He sees a higher throne, a higher court, and he sees the Lord on his throne. The word here for the word Lord is the word master. It means Lord or sovereign ruler of all. In the midst of all disorder, all chaos, all uncertainty, Isaiah is reminded of the master of the Lord, who is sovereign over all things. He is on His throne. And what a comfort we have in this life, in this world, to know that the Lord is reigning in sovereignty, that the Lord is not off His kingdom. He's not off His throne. He is a king forever. Though the king of Judah, King Uzziah, has died, Isaiah sees the king in heaven. And He is on His throne and He is reigning and He has not lost touch and He has not lost sight of what His people need. This is why David writes in Psalm 29.10 that the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as a king forever. In Psalm 47 verses 5 through 9, the songs of Korah. It says, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the shout of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king over all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather as a people of God, of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. And though Israel would demand a king like all the other nations, God never gave up in being their king. He was their still true, righteous, holy king. And God is always on his his throne and he is reigning. There is never a moment in the world of your uncertainty, in the world of what seems like chaos, that God is not sovereign and God is not in control. God is always on His throne despite who may be on an earthly throne, who may be calling the shots in a land, despite what political turmoils there may be, what chaos is going on in the world, what what trouble is, is pressing upon you. There's always a God who is sovereign. And that's true in our world, and that's true for you personally, that God is king, God is sovereign, and despite all the uncertainty, all the shakiness that is around you, when you maybe feel like your world's falling apart, and you maybe feel like things just aren't going the way that they should, a diagnosis comes. The doctor said, she's going to leave. My child won't return home. They're going wayward. Despite what is going on in your life, Isaiah said, I looked and I saw God on his throne. Though there was a King Uzziah that had died, there's a God in heaven who is reigning. And when we come into his presence, when we come into his presence for worship, that's what we've got to see. We've got to recognize that there is a time to be comforted because God is sovereign and God is in control. There is nothing in this world that is chaos. There is nothing in this world that is truly falling apart. Instead, everything is being held together by a sovereign, gracious, mighty God. And it was in this time, in this year, that the king Uzziah died that Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He is on His throne. Beloved, the same is true in the Great Commission when Jesus comes to His disciples and He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Now let me ask you a question. What good is authority that a king gives if he has no jurisdiction in the land? None. A king's authority is only as good as his reign and jurisdiction. (laughs) And Jesus comes to his disciples and said, all authority in heaven and on earth belong to me. Now, therefore, you go and make disciples. Jesus is inviting us to this reality that regardless of what the world looks like, our aim, our mission is to go and make disciples in the understanding of his sovereignty and the comfort of his sovereignty. There is a time to be comforted. Secondly, there's a time to worship. Verses 2 and 3. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah sees these heavenly creatures, these seraphim, literally these Fiery ones that each had six wings, and they're all serving a purpose. They're two they're flying with, and two they're covering their feet, and with two they're covering their faces. They're covering themselves. They are humbling themselves and guarding themselves from the glory of God. Even the most perfect angelic beings and heavenly creatures dare not come into God's presence in arrogance. Instead, Their worship is all about and reflecting and pointing toward the glory of God. And one called to one another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. They're calling to one another, holy, holy, holy. Holy. I think often when we read this passage, we think this is just a passing glimpse that Isaiah looks up and he sees an angel flying through and he just passes and he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. But that's not all that's taking place here. Put yourself in Isaiah's shoes for a moment. Multiple seraphim, multiple angelic creatures, and they see and they're looking at each other and they're calling out to one another with loud shouts and they're echoing over and over and over again, calling out to one another. "Holy, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 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 And Isaiah sees this taking place, and he's completely taken back of what is going on before him. When you get a glimpse into the the heavens, when John shows us a glimpse in Revelation chapter 4, you see worship taking place, and the angelic beings never cease day and night to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Worship is going on every time you look into the heavens. Holy, holy, holy is God. The Hebrew word there is kadosh, 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 kadosh. It means to be set apart. It means to be free from any type of pollution. And here Isaiah is being highly emphatic. He's using the Hebrew form of the superlative tense to give reference to importance, and the purpose of its repetition is to place value upon what? The holiness of God. You think about the Lord's attributes, who God is. 1 John 4 tells us that God is love. And such is, God is love. But what you never read in the scripture is that God is love, love, love. God is love. God is also just. You see that in Deuteronomy 32. But what you don't read in the scripture is God is just, just, just. God is just. God is sovereign. You see it all throughout the scriptures, all throughout the Psalms. But what you don't see is the superlative tense of God is sovereign, sovereign, sovereign. God is sovereign. God is gracious compassionate slow to anger Psalm 145 but you don't hear the scripture saying God is gracious 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 in the superlative tense and here Isaiah says you want to know who God is you want to know his supreme attribute God is holy and God is not just holy God is holy, holy. And God is not just holy, holy. God is holy, holy, holy. And I don't want you to miss it. And how flippant we can be coming into the presence of this Thrice holy God who is holy, holy, holy. It is supreme attribute of God. His love is a holy love. His righteousness is a holy righteousness. His sovereignty is a holy sovereignty. His graciousness is a holy graciousness. His justice is a holy justice. God is holy, holy, holy who we cannot contain, who we cannot comprehend. And Isaiah comes and he sees this holy, holy, holy God that are being worshipped by all these angelic creatures and Isaiah falls to his knees and he cries out worship. And in the same way that we can never wrap our minds of who God really is and know Him most fully, we do see Him revealed in His Word. There's still certainly a mystery, but beloved, there is a time in which you come into worship that you must fall down and you must worship the Lord for who He is. And He is holy, holy, holy. And because He is holy, He deserves all praise and all worship that is due to Him. He is worthy of worship. And our knowledge, as much as we love knowledge, as much as we love to grow in theology and grow in truth, and we should, beloved, sometimes there will come a point that that needs to be set aside and we fall down before the Lord and worship Him because He's holy, holy, holy. Borrowing from these couple of verses in 2 and 3, Point number three is that there is a time to be humbled. There is a time to be humbled. Not only is the Lord holy, and most often when we read and preach this text, this, the word holy is the term that it is certainly important, and it is very important, but I don't want you to miss the second term that's used there, the word for Glory. It's the word, the Hebrew word, kabod. It, it means glory. It means, it's really a word picture of scales, almost like a judicial weight, if you will. The word glory does mean burden, it, it, means, it, it means a weight. It, it, there's, there's something to be measured, it's something to be felt. Beloved, when you come into the presence of God, you can feel his glory. His glory is not just something to be comprehended, his glory is something to be felt. And Isaiah feels this weightiness, he feels this heaviness, if you will. The word kabod. Bringing this idea of scales and it's in the same way that if you had a cup of water and it was filled to the brim And you placed ice something dense in there. It would begin to overflow why? Because it could not contain what's in that cup because the weight of the ice was felt on that liquid and in that cup and it overflowed in the same way. I don't know who is brave enough in up north to go ice fishing (laughs) and literally take their car (laughs) and go over the ice. But beloved, if there is a weight, you know this to be true, if there is a weight heavy enough on something as solid as ice, if there is a weight placed on it that's too heavy for it to bear, the ice will give way. And it will break under the pressure, under the weight, under the heaviness. That's the word kabod. It'll break under The weight of it. And that's why Isaiah responds the way that he responds. And the foundation of the earth shook, and the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah says, I am literally coming apart. Why? For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. You flip back just one chapter to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah is doing what any good, faithful gospel preacher and Old Testament prophet would do. He's calling people to repentance. And that's really the summary of Isaiah's ministry. But look back in Isaiah chapter 5 and notice that Isaiah has been doing this for an entire chapter. He's saying, woe to all of these people. Verse five or verse 8 of chapter 5, woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room, and all are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. Verse 11, he comes down, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. Verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, and draw sin as with cart ropes. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil and put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and who are shrewd in their own sight. For an entire chapter in Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah has had the finger pointed at others. And he's saying, "Woe woe to you and woe to you and woe to you and woe to you and woe to you. And then he sees the holy God. He sees the all-righteous holy God and he's been saying woe to everyone else and he sees the glory of God and he feels the presence of God and he says not woe to you, woe to me. Woe to me for I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. How often are we conveniently comparing ourselves to other Christians? comparing ourselves to others who maybe in their eyes or our eyes, we think we're a little bit better than them in our righteousness. Beloved, we have no comparative religion except for Jesus Christ. And when we look at him and the righteousness that he is and how glorious and majestic he is and how holy he is, you'll be broken. You won't be able to point the finger You'll only be able to fall down and worship and fall in repentance and say, as Isaiah says in this text, woe is me. I'm unclean. And I dwell in the midst of the people that's unclean. Before, I was pointing the finger of blame, but now I understand the reality of who I am in in standing before a holy God. And my offense before the Lord is highly offensive to his holiness. And Isaiah is broken. Not because of others' sin, but he's broken for his own sin. He's broken over his own sin, and he comes to the Lord in a posture of humility, asking the Lord, begging of the Lord, saying, I'm broken, and I'm undone, and I'm a sinner, and Isaiah knows that he needs grace. And that leads us to the final point, a time to be restored. Verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hands a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. This is a very beautiful picture of God's grace in Isaiah's life. Isaiah knew that he was guilty before the Lord, he recognized himself as unworthy, someone that deserved woe. Someone that was unclean. Yet God extends to him great grace and great forgiveness. And, and really, it's done in an odd way of the seraphim that takes a burning coal or this burning stone from the altar. This picture that we see here in this passage is really somewhat odd. We know that from the rest of Scripture that fire is often used as something to symbolize cleansing and and purity, if you will. Numbers 31, Eleazar the priest said to the men of the army who had gone to battle, this is the statute of the Lord that the Lord has commanded Moses, only the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the tin, and the lead, everything that can stand the fire, you shall pass through the fire and it shall be cleansed. Fire is a means of purity. And this burning coal is to be symbolized a thing of purity. Malachi speaks of this as well. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand for when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller soap. The purity of the purification of the fire. And here are the seraphim, these fiery ones that are taking this fiery coal, this burning coal from the altar. And it touches Isaiah's lips. And this is probably the first hint if not the only hint of something being imputed or being transferred to someone. You see even within the the Old Testament purity laws is that you had Israel that was commanded to be pure and by being pure they were to remain pure by never associating with things that are impure because if they ever associated with things that are impure, the impurities of the impure thing would come and affect their purity and therefore defile them. That's what you saw all the time in the Old Testament is is abstain from the things that are unclean because by associating with those things you will become unclean and your purity will be taken away from you. And yet here in this passage we have something astounding taking place The exact opposite of what happens time and time again is that we have someone impure who is now being touched by something that is pure. And instead of the impurities affecting the purity, what's happening is the purity is affecting the impurity. And what was unclean is now being made clean by something that is righteous, by something that is pure, by something that is holy, by something like a refiner's fire. And Isaiah witnesses this, and these coals touch his lips. And instead of Isaiah's impurity affecting that coal, that burning coal affects Isaiah. And Isaiah becomes clean. He becomes holy. He becomes righteous. And he's completely passive. Isaiah did nothing to deserve this righteousness. Isaiah did nothing to deserve this grace. He merely acknowledged his sin. He acknowledged his need for repentance. Woe is me. And then the fiery coals touch his lips and his sin are atoned for. Beloved, this is the same for you and I, pointing us to the reality of the imputed righteousness of Christ. Do you know that's what Jesus does for us? That he takes away our impurities, that you and I, we are sin-filled and we are defiled by all the things of the world. And we cry out to the Lord in grace. We cry out to the Lord in repentance. And the Lord takes His righteousness and fills us and takes away our impurities, takes away our sin. It is the imputed righteousness of Christ. Not that you and I deserve, but was given to us. How? Through the atonement and the sacrifice of Jesus touching our lives, touching our hearts and transforming us to be new creatures. This is why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, that's Jesus, so that in him, that's Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Through our merit? No but through the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice for us that we have been cleansed, we have been restored, we have been renewed, we have been redeemed just like Isaiah was redeemed through the gospel of Jesus Christ because ultimately that's what you see in this passage about the call of Isaiah, the culmination of worship is all pointing us to Christ and His gospel. That's what you see in this text. You see the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see the righteousness of God, that he is holy, holy, holy. You see the sinfulness of man, that Isaiah is a man of unclean lips and he dwells in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Romans would say that no one is righteous, not even one. We've all gone astray. Each one of us has turned our own way. We see the repentance of Isaiah. Woe is me. And you see the grace of God that Isaiah's guilt is taken away and that his sins have been atoned for. This is a picture of God's mercy, of his grace that we all receive by faith in Christ. This is why Paul says that it's in him, Ephesians 1, that it's only through Christ in this way, only through Jesus that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. This is what John would tell us in 1 John 1. to say, if we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Yet if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so my prayer is that we would learn from the call of Isaiah, the call of these movements, these times, these seasons, these ways in which that we come to God and experience him through his presence, through worship, that we would not approach him flippantly, But we would do so in a biblical manner, in light of who he is, to say that when we come to God and worship, there's a time that we can be comforted to know that God is in control, that he is sovereign, that he is king. There's a time to bow down and to worship him, that we would join in the declaration of heaven and worship, to set aside mystery for a moment and to stand in awe of a glorious, holy, holy, holy God and recognize that we are not... And that would transform our life because all of our life should be about worship to the Lord, that we would come and we would humble ourselves and recognize that our sinfulness, our offense before the Lord is great. And in recognizing our sinfulness, that we would humbly repent of those things. And we would look to the Lord to restore us. The only one who can redeem us, that It would remind us of the gospel truth that we have, that all of our righteousness is not from ourselves, but is only through Christ and Christ alone. And we come to him and we look to him to extend grace to us. And we see that this reminder that we need to be comforted, that we need to bow down in worship, that we need to be humbled, but ultimately we need to be restored. And beloved, when you come here to worship, what you need most is you need a glimpse of God. You need a glimpse of who he is just to taste, to taste and see that the Lord is good, that he is sovereign, that he is righteous, that he is holy, that he is glorious, and that you are not, and that you need cleansing. You need the gospel. You need Christ. And that's what we do every single week, to remind ourselves of who we are and who God is. And if we ever forget either one of those truths, we'll lose our way. If we ever forget who God is and we take the holy God of the universe and bring Him down to a trivial nothing that we can flippantly do whatever we want, we've lost sight. God is holy. God is holy, holy, holy. And if we ever lose sight of who we are, good in our flesh, worthy of something, deserving of something, owed of something... We've lost sight. That's the the main error that we lose our way, and when we lose our way, when we lose sight of who God is, and we forget who we are, beloved. May it never be so. May we always remember when we come to worship who God is, and in light of that, come to understand who we are, and we are wretched sinners in need of His grace. And we come to worship and bow down before a thrice holy God who is sovereign in all ways in everything that He does. He is holy, holy, holy. And He extends grace. He extends forgiveness even to the most vile of sinners. And may when we gather together for worship, may the apex of everything that we do be the song that we sing. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. And when I lay down at night, give me Jesus. And when I come to gather for worship on Sunday morning, give me Jesus. And when I die, when my time comes to die, give me Jesus. Give me Christ or give me nothing else. That ought to be the cry of the saints of Christ. Give me Christ. Give me the glory of His gospel. And that is sufficient. And that is enough. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grace Life Church podcast. If you would like more information or have questions about Grace Life Church, please email us at gracelifedecatur at gmail.com or find us on Facebook by searching Grace Life Church Decatur. And if you live in the Decatur area, we would love for you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., Until next time on the Grace Life Church Podcast.